Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Extra Rounds podcast. As always, I'm Mike Dice. This is Elias Sepeda. He was on vacation in Europe for the past two weeks, so I was left to do the show by myself, but he is back now, and we're uh, back together as a duo. How was the trip? It was good. It was good. I missed you guys. I was uh, jealous of uh, Jose Young's. We got to, to jump on here. And I'm excited he's going to be on, and I get to join your guys' party uh, yeah. this week. But no, it was a great trip. I got to do some kickboxing training up in, uh, in, in the Netherlands with Stefan Birkenpas over at the Kyoko Gym. Uh, he's, just, he's one of the best coaches in, uh, in the Netherlands. And if you, you know anything about fighting, you know that uh, Dutch folks are some of the best kickboxers in the world. He, works, he worked with uh, Bigfoot Silva before... He, uh, he fought and beat Alice Wolverine. He works with Charles Rosa, a really good dude, and went to a few other countries too. So I ate a lot of, a lot of bread, a lot of cheese. Uh, it, was, it was a good time. It was a good time. My first time in, uh, in Europe. Well, we're, we're happy to have you back. You've missed a lot. You yeah. missed 204. You missed Ronda Rousey's return. I don't you know. It. I, was, I haven't looked at the news yet. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> the 205. Uh, no, I'm, I've, been, I've been plugged in. The 205 press conference, I don't know if you were gone for that or if you were here for that. I, I was, uh, I think I was gone, but I, I watched it. Um, anyways, the GSP, there's been a lot that's going on. So let's go oh, ahead yeah. and bring uh, Jose Youngs onto the phone. I think he's on the line waiting. Jose, are you there? What is up, brothers? Oh, look at this, the, the triumphant trios together. <laughs> um, well, first of all, Jose, thank you for uh, taking the time out to join the show for out of your work day. Uh, really appreciate it. Jose, for those of you who don't know, uh, writes for Fansided, amongst other places, uh, part of Sports Illustrated MMA. He also writes for Flow Combat and uh, a billion other places, it seems like. Um, Prolific. Yes. And he's got way, he's definitely got the best hair of, of any of us. That's why we kept him off camera, by the way. We don't want to be shy. I don't know, man. My hair's pretty green right now. Is it? <laughs> I say it's yeah, cool. It looks good. You were, in, you were in Europe and you missed, you missed a whole lot outside of the Oh, fight, man. Yeah, if you, if you want to see his hair, you can check out his Instagram. The, the picture we used for you in the lower third is from your Facebook, which was pre hair dyeing. Uh, yeah. Anyways, well, let's uh, jump right into it. We wanted to uh, talk to you some things about you, uh, you know some of the big MMA topics. The first thing that I figured we would talk about is uh, GSP. He went on Ariel's show on Monday, uh, said that he was a free agent, that his lawyer terminated his contract with the UFC after failing to reach a negotiation or reach a deal to bring him back. Uh, he really wanted to fight on the 204 card or 206 card in Toronto, which everybody seemed like a, a given. Um, so I'll throw this to the two of you, whoever wants to go first. Uh, what are your initial thoughts to the whole interview on Ari- on Ariel Hawane's show. Go ahead, Jose. Well, call me off guard. I knew they were GSP and uh, USC President Dana White had been basically going back and forth through the media. Uh, GSP was on USC tonight saying uh, Dana White like like doesn't know me like that. Uh, he's not a fighter. This and that. And it seems like every time GSP's name was brought up, Dana would say uh, his heart's not in it. I don't him ever coming back and then literally within hours gsp would respond with i want to come back so it was it was a, it was a back and forth war through the media which is which is bizarre considering like it just flashing back three years ago uh uh george st Pierre is headlining the ufc's 20th anniversary show uh dana white's going uh, to press conference saying george is the biggest pay-per-view draw we've ever had he was on UFC 100. Used uh, the face of the Canadian market and all of the MMA, not just the UFC. Uh, headlines that that giant card against Jake Shields, and he was pretty much 
UFC's golden boy. So it, it is a little, it's very, very bizarre to see how much of a change happened over the last three years. Yeah, it really, it really is. Um, it's things have, I guess, have been have been changing probably beneath the current for a long time. You know, you you want to think to George's last his his last fight when he fought Johnny Hendricks after after the fight. He says he was kept from the post fight press conference by UFC uh, officials, and uh, Dana White really threw him under the bus with for no good reason in that post-fight press conference. Heck, go back before that, actually. I'm sure George didn't like when um, when the UFC changed their sponsorship situation in a major way even before Reebok years ago, and George's major sponsor, Affliction, back then. He wasn't able to represent them in the ring, so he wore black shorts. So there's been a lot of tension. George, back in the day, uh, took the Michael Jordan model of not really talking, out being outspoken about any issues. And uh, and he didn't really speak up back then, but he's clearly been irritated. Dana White, yeah, like like Jose has said, is has really been upping the ante. Uh, really, I think speaking, in my opinion, speaking out of turn. Uh, and uh, he he started basically playing this negotiating game through the media. George, to his credit, realized that and um, and decided to frame the issue himself. When I saw that, that was the day I got back, um, actually home. Um, the MMA Hour, Ariel Hawani had George on, and George says, "I'm a free agent." And I knew right then and there that who, who George's next opponent was going to be and was going to be the UFC. Um, predictably, if hours later the UFC came out and said, no, he's not a free agent. Uh, it was George's lawyers and himself have a different view than the UFC and their lawyers. And we've seen situations like this before. Like in 2008, I believe, Randy Couture wanted to fight Fedor Emelianenko. Randy, I believe, was the reigning heavyweight champion again at that point. The UFC didn't sign Fedor, who was a former Pride champ. Randy said, well, I'm gonna, I want to split. I want to go somewhere else. So he retired, and he thought that would give him the ability to go somewhere else. His lawyers told him that would give him the ability to, to fight elsewhere. The UFC disagreed. They sued him. They battled out for a long time. The UFC ended up winning. Uh, if, if both sides remain intractable here, that's, that's where we're bound. I wrote, I wrote about this a bit in my uh, weekly column over at uh, MixedMartialArts.com. Uh, and, and I think uh, it's a very interesting situation because George's situation is a lot different than anything we've seen before. One, he actually is probably one of, if not the most well-funded, he could put up one of the most well-funded uh, legal battles that any MMA fighter has ever been able to, to do because uh, the UFC has, has been in legal battles with fighters before. And on behalf of fighters, um, he can actually... He could actually mount some type of uh, some type of fight, some type of sustained fight, and also there's some issues now that have never really been discussed. Um, things like the the Reebok deal and the fact that George George's current UFC contract or past, if you believe George and his lawyers, um, was signed before the Reebok deal took place. They obviously feel some and it either invalidates it or requires some type of readjusting in order for him to to have to either wear Reebok, and again, the big deal here is that he's a, an Under Armour athlete, which is a big deal uh, for him. Um, so it's a weird situation. A lot of things, if both sides continue to fight, can really end up being settled. Uh, some really core issues, like fighters being considered independent contractors, but having a lot uh, mandated of them, and so maybe some particular things like the Reebok deal. See, I don't know about you, Jose, but me, I don't, I don't see the Under Armour deal... I know a lot of people point your fingers at that, and it was probably most definitely a hurdle. But I don't see it being something that would prevent it from happening. He's the fighters are 
sponsored by apparel lines all the time. You know what I mean? Like Sage Northcutt's social media timelines, like Labrada, nothing but that, you know? Um, yeah, yeah but, but you could also think about like when Demetrius Johnson was sponsored by Xbox. As soon as the Reebok deal showed up and it was, it was revealed that Demetrius Johnson would no longer be allowed to wear his Xbox gear, Xbox or Microsoft pulled sponsorship. So maybe that's on Under Armour's thing where like if you're not going to yeah. be able to wear our gear, then you're not, not going to be sponsored anymore. That's a, that's a very valid point. That's what George has been basically saying is that uh, he's making more money now than he was when he was fighting. So if, they, if he's going to come back to fight and lose money, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So they've got to they've figure something out. I don't know. You guys remember back in the, the Dream Team, the original one, Michael Jordan, uh, was obviously Nike sponsored. And I think it was Reebok at the time. I think it was, which would be it's kind of funny. They were, they were doing the uniforms for the Olympic team. And their warm-up gear when they were accepting the medal he didn't want to have to represent Reebok and that wasn't even a situation yeah. where Nike would That's have dropped great, uh, him get a towel over yeah. he wore the flag the flag yeah, it was the flag, the flag. Right. I said towel yeah, flag. yeah. yeah. Um, so we have a question coming in the uh, the chat on the Facebook live so we'll throw this to you Jose since you are the expert on the show sharing your knowledge with us Mike wants to know do you guys believe there's a chance GSP fights in the UFC again Absolutely. I think money talks. And, uh, I mean, you saw, like, well, Chris, we- Chris Wyman came out and said, uh, like, the deal for the USC 205 car, like, him and Dana were just not seeing eye to eye. They were just butting heads over his contract. And then Dana White called Lorenzo Fertitta, the old USC boss, to come in and basically come back to work in Dana's quotes, uh, Dana's quotes and figure something out. And, uh, I don't know if that's the case with George. George said he was working with Lorenzo before the sale. So if if Chris can, if Lorenzo Fajita can convince Chris to come back, then maybe Dana will find like maybe there's a way GSP can. But I would never say never. George has been with the UFC for like ten years, basically. Uh, I, it'd be hard to envision him going anywhere else. But to say that he'll never fight in UFC again, I I can't say that. Do you think? Well, let's focus on this one comment. He said that the part of the the issue that the new owners gave him was that it would cost too much money to reintroduce him to the MMA market. <laughs> Thoughts on what that? What a Jose? weird statement. <laughs> That's, that, I mean, that's pretty much the extent of my thoughts. This, this is the kind of stuff that that um, that that ownership uh, tells fighters during negotiations. They tell them absurd things to try to uh, distort, or they'll maybe believe accurately present their market value. They want to drive that low. They want to drive their confidence low as well. They want to op- be op- negotiating from a point of strength while the while the labor is 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 not so much. Um, uh, yeah, I think that's an interesting thing that is hard to. Um, I guess disprove right because George is going to have to show or maybe he's not interested in, in making this argument if he isn't good for him uh, but he would have to show all sorts of metrics outside of of his being able to be on television fighting for the last few years that that, that could disprove them um, yeah I mean it seems like a bunch of hard line negotiating tactics to me at this point but yeah they, you, you talk to fighters or even, even they, they say a lot of things publicly now um, you hear these absurd Absurd things that are, are like really try to drive down the uh, the value of uh, of fighters in, in the public eye. So um, on that, this is my thing. 
for those people who watch wrestling, Goldberg just came back for the first time in like 12 years. Yeah. He has like a kid who's 12 who's never seen him in the ring. He's been gone that long. And they remembered him. So they bring him out to promote a video game and it costs zero money to reintroduce him. Zero. Right. You know, there's kids who are like going to their teens, you know, or teenagers who don't even remember Goldberg being in the cage and not an issue at all. Right. They're using it to sell a pay-per-view. Yeah. And so the same thing with like GSP, it's like even if there's MMA fans who are new to the sport who didn't watch him during his first run, you're you're going to now that you're paying attention to the media, you're going to learn just watching the people who were here for it discuss it. You know what I mean? Like, Absolutely. And they own all his fight footage, all his major fight footage. That's that's the thing. Yeah, where package I, reels made. Where are you exactly. money on? G- GSP, I w- GSP's management, if they're still talking to the UFC, I would love to have them say, <laughs> okay, uh, UFC ownership, tell us the second sentence in this argument. But tell us how much it's going to cost and why. Like, really break that down. Line item us how expensive it is to reintroduce him. Yeah, I don't get it at all. Well, let's uh, shift gears a little bit. Uh, Chael Sonnen versus Tito Ortiz was announced. Bellator at the Forum in January. Uh, first of all, Jose, are you excited for this fight? Do you want to see this fight? Uh, that's an interesting question. I mean, in terms of... It's a Bellator. I, don't, I wouldn't want to see it in the UFC. Bellator, sure, why not? I mean, if they're going to give us... Boyce Gracie and Ken Shamrock and Kimbo Slice versus Dada 5000. And yeah, sure, I'll watch it in Bellator, especially if it's free, it's on Spike TV. I mean, it's in LA, so I'll be there. Uh, I don't think I'd pay a pay-per-view money to see this fight in the UFC, especially with, with uh, these two elder statesmen of, of mixed martial arts. But yeah, I'll watch it. I mean, they're, they're two of the most popular fighters of all time. you got the American Gangster versus the, the Huntington Beach Bad Boy, uh, two of the best talkers, two of the best promoters. Uh, so the hype and the lead up to this fight is definitely going to be uh, one of um, interesting. Uh, they're going to bring in the the casual fans who just remember Chael Sonnen's from his trash talking and his his Fox Sports and his his, his fights with Anderson, and then everybody knows Tito Ortiz. I mean, he fought Stephen Bonner, and that was one of the highest rated shows in Bellator history. Just imagine what Tito Ortiz can pull in against Chael Sonnen. So yeah, I'll watch it 100. percent yeah, it's a good distinction. I watch it in Bellator. I watch it for free. That's that's good. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. I think that's a fair argument people make anytime that they do a uh, they do a show. They want to, you know, am I going to pay for this pay per view? That was a big mm-hmm. talking point heading into UFC 204. Um, you know, it's kind of in the, it's kind of back into the same mold and the the kind of fight that a lot of people give Bellator a hard time for. But at the same time, it's something that I w- would be interested in seeing. Like I'm interested in seeing Chael Sonnen come back. Yeah, if they promised, like, to wrestle, I'd, I'd like this even more. Like, two good wrestlers. <laughs> I wanted to see these two guys grapple. Like, I hope it's not, like, a really, like, no disrespect. I hope it's not. Like um, when Josh Koscheck fought Matt Hughes and it was just a yeah. minute. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'd, I'd love to see these guys in, in their strongest suits, see who can go, you know, who, who's better. I, that's always fun to me. Guys of the same age and the same background, that'd be cool. And uh, moving on to a different topic. We talked about this uh, right after it was announced, actually, with Jose when you were gone. Elias, enjoying vacation. We don't, <laughs> we don't know what that is. But uh, um, Ronda you, Rousey. You were in Cleveland for 16 weeks straight partying, so yeah. don't talk to me, man. Cleveland, the party capital of the world. <laughs> Ronda Rousey is returning to a 7 to fight Amanda Nunes. And uh, 
there's been some backlash from people like Juliana Pena is upset. She called her a spoiled brat and a bunch of other things. Um, and then Dana White said that part of Ronda Rousey's issue in her return or delaying her return was the media. Jose, you're the face of MMA media. Do you, do you believe this? That, like, that Dana's, like, blaming the media for Rousey's issues? Do you believe that Ronda's uh, issue, yeah, the media... I don't, I don't want to... I don't, I don't like the... At, not even just this situation. I don't like it when anyone just paints an entire group of people with just, like, one brush. I mean, I'm sure there are definitely media members out there that, that like, poked Ronda and called her out and this and that. And whether you want to call the media or bloggers or... What, especially in this age when everyone has a voice on social media, I think there's a difference between all the Twitter trolls that have been calling out Ronda and the actual media. Because I, as far as I've been, as far as I've seen, I haven't seen too many legitimate media that covers the UFC for a living, but bashing Ronda Rousey. Like, yeah, there's been some uh, some opinion pieces, some columns. There's been, I'm sure, there's been the, the fair share of people who talk, like talk privately about like Ronda. But as far as Ronda just saying the media is like to blame for everything. I, I never like it when anyone paints any group of people with one brush, let alone something I'm part of. So I, I don't know. It's if that's what Ronda's saying. Maybe she needs it as motivation. She she is one of those like you've seen it in the past when she squared off against Holly Holmes. She she tried to make herself fired up by calling out Holly. Maybe this is that. Maybe she just needs to hate someone to to get back in the fighting mindset. But just from what I've seen, I haven't seen too many or if at all uh, at legitimate MMA media uh, bashing Ronda Rousey like like they're claiming. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I, listen, Dana White was doing what Donald Trump does with the media before Donald Trump was, was on the, the political scene at the <laughs> national level. And they're good friends, and they have very, very similar styles. And one of the main things they do is try to... Um, just vilify the media all the time. You know, Dana White will vilify the media at the same time as he books UFC fighters to go on TMZ. So it's, I, 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 Jose brings up the most important points. I, I was just going to say, and I agree with him, I was just going to say, I don't, I don't know that I would believe that that's the big issue for Ronda. Just Dana White, like, while she was still saying she couldn't chew a piece of fruit, was saying, oh, I, I talked to Ronda. She's ready to go. She's ready to fight again after she lost Holly Holmes. So, I think he, he's wrong to, to, to paint with such a broad brush. He does it often, and I don't know that what he's saying would even be... We have any reason to believe it's even true that, that it's important to Ronda Rousey because he, he lies a lot. Um, and we have one question. I guess we'll wrap up with this uh, that came across the things. And this has been a big talking point that I've seen come around social media lately, so it's kind of an interesting question. Bigger star, Rousey or McGregor? What do you think, Jose? Hmm, that was an interesting question. Yeah, I mean, a tough in one. terms of in terms of the casual fans, I'm gonna have to say Ronda. Just, um, she's on the she was the she was on the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit. She's the face of all of these uh, clothing lines. I would say in the casualized Ronda, but as far as the fight world, I think a lot more people are intrigued by Connor right now, especially because he's going after history with the two belts. So. Casual fans, Ronda, fight fans, I'll say Connor, just because he's he he's a fighting champion. I know everyone likes to 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 go after Connor for like skipping lines and 
picking his fights, but it's not like he's saying, oh, I want to fight, like, next year. I mean, what, this is his fourth, third fight in the last 12 months? So, yeah, Connor's a bigger star amongst the fight fans, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to disagree with that. I think Connor probably sells more pay-per-views, or he definitely sells more pay-per-views, but I don't think he's yet made the inroads into the mainstream and the general consciousness as Ronda Rousey has. Like, I, my, my, my mother-in-law talks about Ronda Rousey. I don't think she's ever mentioned Conor McGregor yet, but, you know, Ronda's really been out there the last couple of years between the films and interviews and stuff like that. So, yeah, it, it depends, I guess, how you classify it, right? If you're looking at pay-per-views, Conor McGregor's selling more, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. He also had Nate Diaz to help him out, right? But if you're looking at just general awareness of a figure in the mainstream, it's probably Ronda Rousey. Well, when you can talk about the pay-per-view guys, like Ronda Rousey's been used to help buoy other people's pay-per-views, yeah. whereas Conor McGregor has been given incredible undercard fights. Like 194 had uh, Weidman Rockhold. Sure. 196 had Tate Holm. Uh, yeah. 202. 189 was, was the greatest main card ever. Yeah, yeah Lawler uh, McDonald. That's a good point. You know, so he's gotten a lot of help, too. Wow. From some stacked cards. 202, I don't think a lot of people thought was necessarily a stacked card. It was a good card. But Nate but Diaz is a gigantic star. Yeah. So, well, yeah. that and the way that everything that happened in the first yeah. fight, like, they didn't need that going into right. this one because, I mean, it was his first rematch in the UFC and there was this huge storyline, him trying to come back. So, um, anyways, Jose, thank you for taking the time out to join us. Uh, we know you're busy. Uh, let the people know where they can find you on social media. Uh, you can just follow me at Jose Youngs, J-O-C-Y-O-U-N-G-S. I'm pretty much every single social media out there, so I'm easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again for taking the time out to talk to us. Thanks, brother. See ya. There we have it. He's a, he's great, man. I really like his work. He's a, he's a really hard worker, and uh, you know, I originally met him at a UFC event and got yeah. to know him over um, going to different events. And, I mean, he works incredibly hard. And uh, there's not many people who work as hard as he does. He's, he's got a, a great future it um, ahead of him. He's insightful, too, man. Yeah, he's got, he's, you know, insightful. He's been a fan of the sport for a long time and knows a lot of things. And he has a, a great ability to recall things quickly, too, as we kind of saw a couple conversations. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I might have to think and look something up. Same here. He's like, you know, he's... We got a guy in the office, Matt, who's that way with the NFL. He can just, you know, oh, who was in the 1985, you know, uh, <laughs> AFL championship game? Here's these people. I um, used to be that way with, like, the, 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 the Bulls dynasties back when I was a kid. About 15 years after, though, I stopped being able to recall uh, everything. But I, I had all sorts of arbitrary facts about the Bulls. Can't do it with anything else, though. I respect these guys again. <laughs> so uh, we have a lot of people watching, and uh, I think a lot of people are eager to um, <clears throat> hear what Conor McGregor has to say. So uh, before Joseph Benavidez, who's a coach this season on The Ultimate Fighter, joins us at 2.30 Central Time, 3.30 Eastern, uh, just wanted to play a little bit of the interview, and then we'll play the rest of it after uh, the interview with uh, – Mr. Benavides. Uh, basically, I interviewed him this weekend as part of a promotional uh, blitz for his role in the uh, video game Call of Duty, um, Call of Duty Infinite Warfare. He's got a character in the show, as is Kit Harrington, who plays on um, Game of Thrones. He's Jon Snow in Game of Thrones. He also has a character on the show. They're actually on the same side team. I don't know if that's what you, what you. Uh, War teams. 
Yeah. So, <laughs> anyways, we uh, talked to him about that among some other UFC topics. But I kind of wanted to just go ahead and while we're waiting and killing time, go ahead and play that because I know a lot of people are eager to hear what he has to say. So the first uh, one of the questions that I asked was, uh, how long have you been a fan of Call of Duty? And what is it about the game that you love so much? And this is what he had to say. You know, I was actually... And I want to apologize again because he was in a conference room and... Uh, on speakerphone. He was on speakerphone. So the quality is not the best, but uh, this is what he had to say. You know, with this game. Call of Duty Black Ops, when I came out, I was in an apartment with my girlfriend and, and I'd be literally up all night. And she'd wake up at like past 6, 6.30 a.m. in the morning to get ready to go to work and I'd still be up playing the game. And when she'd wake up, I'd know, right, now it's time to go to bed and not go on any longer. So then I'd go to sleep and then she'd come back. She'd wake, she'd come back from work and then I'd know, okay, now she's finished work, now it's time to get up. And then off I'd go again. I'd go training for two hours and then I'd come back and I'd be playing the game all night until 6 or 8 a.m. And that was a process I went, on, went through for a long while. I was actually hooked on the game. So the opportunity came to present itself for me to be in the game. I thought it was all over. Um, So I follow that question up by asking him, uh, do the fighter, when some, when an opportunity comes like this and you're a big fan of something, do you use your celebrity to reach out and be like, I'm a fan, mm. can I get involved? Or do they reach out to you because you're Conor McGregor? Yeah. And he's kind of like, exactly. <laughs> they reach out to me because I'm Conor McGregor. He didn't say it in those exact words, but that's basically what he said. He's like, exactly. They, they come to me. They put the offer in front of me. He's like, you know, I've had a lot of offers and then I get to pick and choose what I want which is uh, really, really interesting. Um, so let me see if I can get Joseph Benavidez on the line. Yeah, I think uh, these, I'm always so torn with these types of interviews. You know, a lot of times it's, it may be tough to get certain fighters on the line, uh, except for when they've got something to promote. And so you've got you've to talk about that thing that they're promoting in addition to uh, the other, you know, more uh, substantive current event stuff, which we do get into um, later. Connor does get into them later. Mike talked about him with, with some interesting stuff. Uh, but at, at least in this situation, like it's real, it's legitimate. Connor seems to, uh, he sounded pretty excited when he said he used to stay up all night uh, like a true gamer. Uh, playing Call of Duty, so even though they came to him, that's probably a uh, a pretty cool uh, opportunity for him. That he's one that he's pretty stoked. I know there's a lot of interesting uh, politics with sports games um, that started when uh, you know, one of the O'Bannon brothers, I can't remember uh, which one, unfortunately, but played at UCLA. Uh, he started this this lawsuit going after EA Sports um, because. He didn't get any royalties from them playing, and you know, fighters now, obviously, UFC fighters, um, they, you know, they get royalties from UFC, uh, the UFC video games, but it's they don't have any say in, in what those royalties are. But we know from talking to fighters over the years that they really get a kick out of um, these financial issues aside, whether they're satisfied or not satisfied, I'm sure it depends. They really get a kick out of being able to see themselves in a game. So Conor McGregor is now going to be in an, at least his second video game. He's, he's in there fighting a UFC game, and now he's in Call of Duty. Uh, the two games that he really uh, grew up loving to play. 
that's pretty cool. Uh, that's definitely something you could pass down. And, you know, if you get kids one day, you, you could play as your as your dad or your mom. That's a that's a pretty rad thing. So uh, just to let everybody know, we uh, called Joseph Benavidez. He uh, didn't pick up, so we're just kind of waiting for him to call back and uh, talk to us. Um, in the meantime, that means we can keep going with Conor McGregor. So uh, I asked a bunch of questions about Call of Duty, but I only wanted to share two of them before getting to some of the other UFC related topics that we talked about. The uh, other UFC question that I wanted to share with you get, or Call of Duty question that I wanted to share with uh, the viewers is, was it hard to film scenes uh, in an essentially empty room? For those mm-hmm. of you who didn't see the pictures that he shared of him filming the game, he's in the suit with like the little dots on oh, him. motion capture. Yeah, yeah, and he's like, it's basically an empty room and he's trying to act, but you know when you're acting on a sitcom or a movie, well maybe not all movies, but like you have usually visual cues. Yeah, you got set, someone in front of you. Person to talk to, a set, stuff to uh, reference uh, when you, as you're trying to get into this role and essentially pretend to be something so was it hard to film uh scenes in an empty room by himself you know it was actually all right to be honest they just wanted you know they, they, they directed me well just, they said they wanted something i just went to try and do it the best i could and that acting game freaks me the fuck out to be honest i don't i don't know why but and um, this one didn't feel like that it was just kind of it felt like i was just playing you know what I mean? I just went over and pretend to keep this guy in the head and hit him with a gun and grab him by the neck and tell him to stop me all the time. It just felt like, it felt like fun or something. It didn't feel weird. You, sometimes they try and get me to do these things, they feel weird to me, but, and this one, this one didn't, it was, it was different, so. Maybe it was because I was all in the, in the, in the, in the suit and I knew it was going to be in game form. I just felt a little bit more relaxed or something. I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. And, and usually, and and what he was talking about there is that uh, they were going to do a beta test of the game uh, online with players and he was going to sit there and actually play online and he put like his PlayStation username or whatever out there so people could try and play with him in this game and uh, it got so overwhelmed with requests to be a part of it that uh, it basically shut the system down so that's crazy he didn't get to i was really looking to hear what he had to say about uh about it i you know i can't remember if he touched about it in the first question um but i know we talked about it is that uh i asked him if he still played online yeah. and if he had like a secret user yeah, handle yeah. where he could you know so everyone in the world doesn't know that it's him <laughs> you know oh at the notorious mmas in this game right but he uh he said he doesn't he doesn't have time to with everything yeah. he does uh so he was looking forward to getting to play online because it's something i hadn't done in such a long time that's yeah, too bad he didn't get to there was a uh, a really cool memory back in geez i don't remember what year you have to look the tough five ultimate fighter for season five jens pulver and bj penn were coaching i forget exactly what year it was but after the season had aired uh jens pulver and bj penn uh, were, were were set to uh to fight for the second time they fought years earlier when jen's um was champion and pulled up to jen's pulver's iowa house and he was playing online with with uh with fans and his username was something like crow crop uh but that was pretty cool a lot of these fighters do enjoy playing uh video games and they enjoy playing with their fans so that's that's kind of a dope thing to be able to do i imagine at uh, both ends cormier was on some show maybe it was ariel's show was uh talking about he was playing he stopped playing 2k17 
to go on the show and he quit on a guy in the middle of the game because he was losing and he had it was time for him to do the interview <laughs> so um i know like des bryant who plays for the cowboys yeah. he plays he like if you follow him on twitter he's always he's a very avid madden player and he that's cool he takes on people like online all the time <laughs> like, they send him his name they'll talk trash on twitter and stuff that's it's pretty, pretty cool. entertaining i think that's cool it's a cool way to bridge yeah. the gap like not only are you um you know you can essentially communicate with any pro athlete yeah. via social media but when you're playing a game like you have that person's attention for a period of time and you can um, talk to them and interact with them especially in a game like madden or something where it's like a one-on-one thing yeah. you know call of duty it becomes a room and there's mm. like a lot of people so that's hard but when you have uh, this one-on-one thing like in madden it's interesting so yeah, i can uh, only imagine you know i've never I, I don't play video games much i play madden but i've never played online so i don't even know what it's like to play with like quote-unquote regular people it's got to be crazy to be able to do it with a, someone you're when a fan i was of. younger i played call of duty online, yeah. but i haven't played like in five six years yeah. or something but yeah it, it's crazy that would be cool um so uh i wrote a story about the quote uh this quote this weekend on sports illustrated um and I asked Ronda, uh, I asked Conor McGregor about Ronda Rousey in her return to UFC 207 because I said uh, their stories parallel each other. Mm. Um, there's a lot of similarities between what uh, they're going through. You know, Conor was a champion who was viewed as invincible, and uh, he suffered a stunning loss to Nate Diaz and came back and had to come back and you know correct that loss and kind of regain his stature in his mind. Not that necessarily he lost it, but that was the storyline, anyways. So Ronda Rousey. You know, undefeated, invincible, uh, most dominant fighter on the planet, loses in stunning fashion, very convincingly. Uh, It's gone for a year, and now she's trying to come back. So there's a parallel there. So I asked him, uh, having gone through that, what advice would he give Ronda Rousey uh, ahead of her return Mm -hmm. at UFC 207? And this is what he had to say. Um, You know, I don't have to shoot them all up now. Don't shoot them all now. Don't, don't take your claim again. So I, w- I wish on the, nothing but the best. It's good, it's good to see a fight. You know, some people can take losses and losses a certain way. And, you know, when you see, you see how some fighters take losses, you see, you know, so um, I'm happy she, she's, she's ready to go again. And, and I wish her well. Don't, don't shoot these people up now. Don't, don't get, don't get what, what you began back. So. I'm excited to see how it unfolds. Uh, so basically saying, go shut them all up and get your uh, get your bell back and you know take your throne back, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was simple but uh, powerful. You know what I mean? I think when he did somebody of Ronda Rousey and Conor McGregor, he doesn't need to come in and be like, you need to keep your hand up. Right, you right, you know, right. But um, certainly he can relate to the, the media scrutiny, yeah. uh, which we talked about with Jose, Dana White was talking about, and his advice is simply, you know, just go and shut them all up. Yeah. And I, I thought that was powerful in a weird way. Yeah, you've got to probably do weird things in your head once you become famous because it's got to be, uh, unless you're some type of weird egomaniac or uh, narcissist it's got to be really hard to be famous even if no one's out quote unquote to get you um, and or there's you know no big movement against you there's just there's just a lot that you have to deal with the loss of privacy um, big spotlight gets hot magnifying glass gets annoying I imagine Um, so yeah I think it's something that kind of relates to and and that's probably like a, a broad but very profound thing that you need to do you need to turn 
the negative parts of that fame into motivation for yourself. The, the negativity needs to just be something that you could shut down and shut up. All right, here's uh, Joseph Benavides calling in. Hey, Joe, how are you? Guys, I'm so sorry. I was all got busy here making lunch in the kitchen and stuff and just uh, forgot about it. No worries. What you making, man? What you making for lunch? Oh, I was just like, well, I got this espresso maker. I was setting up, and I just made this, like, avocado toast. And, you know, then I was cleaning dishes and shit. I feel you like uh, people people are... I, I woke up one day, and everyone was talking about avocado toast. I've been having... Aguacate sandwiches my whole life. I guess I was lucky and ahead of the curve. I've been putting avocado on bread yeah. and other things my whole freaking life. How about you? No, nah, I kind of came around to it. And now I literally just make it with a, like a sandwich with a bunch of avocado. But I'll put like feta cheese, olive oil, um, chili flakes on the avocado. And then I'll just throw like a, a, a piece of like nice turkey on it. Nice. It's basically just a sandwich with a bunch of avocado, but like that chili pepper and shit. Oh man, that's the way to go, it man. That's really good. We got to stop doing the the show during lunch. Now I'm hungry, Mike. That was yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to talk to us. With Beefcake One Twenty Five with the Capital. Yeah, man. Of course, I'm excited. So uh, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, the Ultimate Fighter, which you're coach on this season. So. Uh, I believe this is the first time you've gone through the show. So what was that process like? Yeah, Dude, it was so awesome. You know, um, definitely one of the best, um, like, challenging and rewarding experiences of my career, you know, for sure. And I feel it's an experience I needed at this point in my career, too, just to mix it up, you know. Um, it just made me even... Um, I guess just experience more out of fighting. I mean, fighting for 11 years and doing what I've done and, you know, the ups and downs I've had is such an experience, but getting to look at it from this perspective and coaching and, and helping, um, it was just, it was really nice. Like I said, it was challenging, but it was so rewarding and um, felt like it just gave me, like, a new love for the sport, a new outlook of it, and it was just something very nice and refreshing to, to do it, which was surprising because going into it, obviously, I was the situation and everything and pushing the fight back and like just the whole um you know format of the show i was a little went into a little bitter like man how is this going to be fun um and like i said it just was really surprised me and you know i'd heard people say they wouldn't want to do it again but for me i was like i just i really loved it you know i just looked at it as a is it, it, a new job and a new experience in this sport and uh, i feel like i got the most i could out of it and tried to give my guys the most that, that i could give them as well now, the the theme this show was that it was champions from all these different independent organizations. Was it uh, challenging to uh, coach a bunch of people who were essentially champions in different organizations? Was there, like, a little bit of ego? And some of the guys even fought in the UFC before. Yeah. No, it, was, it, was, um, it wasn't hard coaching them as far as, like, technique and stuff goes because, I mean, they already are so skilled. You know what I mean? So that part made my job easy. You know, just... You know, it's like the show, you have six weeks, so it's not where, like, you go in and change fighters from the ground up. Like, I think that would be a lot harder, you know. But the fact that these guys came in already um, skilled and talented, like, it kind of made my job easy, you know, just giving them a little structure. I mean, these guys are world-class. But, yeah, like, I guess the dynamic of it was a little different because at the same time, I looked at these guys as my peers, and I'm sure these guys, obviously, they respected me, and I'm glad, and I was lucky I had such a group that respected me and, you know, took what I said to heart and believed in me as, like, a coach and, like, a technician. But 
it was just a little different because I look at these guys as my peers, but all of a sudden I'm supposed to be their leader and, you know, kind of telling them what to do. So that was a little different is having guys so skilled, like, you know, basically as skilled as me as a peer, but yet try to, you know, be their leader and just kind of find that balance between being a peer, but also knowing, yes, I'm the more experienced guy and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to help, you know, as much as I can. So, yeah, that was different for me because I don't, like take myself that serious in that manner of like, hey, I should give this person advice or I'm such a leader and I'm such a role model and so this, but you know, it was just it was just nice. You know, I just looked at myself as hey, these guys are my teammates and it's kind of about them and um, you know, just finding that balance between being a peer but also, you know, lending them a hand. And uh you actually fought Tim Elliott and he was he's on your team on the show. What is was there a weird dynamic there with him in particular? Dude, no, that actually made it so much easier. I think we had such a respect for each other that we knew going in, you know, that it was going to be, um, you know, that I, I wanted him on my team, of course, you know, respecting him so much, not only by fighting him, but just what he's done in the sport, you know. I looked at him as the guy going in like, hey, you know, all these other guys are trying to be where he's at, you know, and, you know, he's there to prove that he's still one of the best guys and they're there to, they're there to show it. But he was a proven guy in there. And having fought him, man, um, I just had so much respect for him before our fight and after our fight, obviously. And then going in, it was just, it was actually really cool getting to know him on a deeper level. You don't really get that with opponents. You know, you see them the week of the fight, maybe a little bit after. I know some people, you know, share some drinks or share this maybe after the fight, but to get to know a former opponent on a deeper level like that for six weeks and, you know, become even a bigger part of each other's journeys because he was a big part of my journey as well. And there are all these guys were you know, um, by just listening to me and, uh, and, you know, giving me the respect and everything that they did. And, you know, I, you know, hoping I was a small part of their journey. So to get that with an opponent, um, especially one like Tim, who was already a guy that I liked, um, it was really cool, man. Like I said, just awesome experience. And, uh, one of the guys who was on your team, Brandon Moreno has already gotten his first win in the UFC. What was, is it prideful to watch him succeed? Yeah, man. Can you believe that? Like, that was the best thing is this guy i think that just shows how skilled this season of the ultimate fighter is the guy went in as the number 16 seed in the tournament lost in the first round but i think it's also a credit to just the show in general and just this pressure cooker they put the guys in is they're just are forced to become better men and better fighters just by doing this they're so much stronger you know they squeeze in so much experience into a short time that you saw Brandon Moreno fight on the first episode, and then you saw him and you saw him lose, and now you see it. Then you see him go out and beat the number nine guy in the world, and that was just amazing for me because that was one guy that I feel really, really improved out of the show. You know, having lost in the first round, he could use that as a mini training camp and improve. And um, it was just crazy. After that show, I said, "Guys, trust me. The Brandon Moreno now would be two of those Brandon Morenos that lost." Hmm that first day and uh you know then he gets his chance and goes in and beats the number nine guy in the world um that was incredible and he went in as the 16th seed didn't even make it through one fight of the tournament and goes in and beats the number nine guy but um like i said i also think that just shows not only how tough the show is but how much better someone can get on that show like if these guys go in as champions they're going to come in just double the men and fighters they are you know after the show it makes you think that if he would have been seated differently and fought later in the show he might have had a different journey through the tournament yeah exactly but it worked out perfect for him and for brandon man i just i don't think it could have happened to a better kid a more lovable guy like anyone on the show could have gone and won 
um, with talent and skill, but just the likability of that guy and his story. I mean, the guy makes pinatas in Tijuana, Mexico, goes in, beats the number nine guy in the world on a week notice. Um, I think the whole world fell in love with him, not only on the show, but then more so after his fight, you know, goes in, gets the bonus, changes his life. And um, those are just the kind of stories you love to see. You know, you don't always see that happen to the right people or sometimes the right people, you know, you don't always get what you deserve. But in that case, it was so awesome to see Brandon, you know, go out and get what he worked for and, uh, and, and what I think he deserved for sure. And one of the storylines is always the drama between coaches. Is it difficult to be around somebody that you're going to fight that much? Yeah, that's the different thing, man, is um, I don't really dislike my opponents. I never really have or had an opponent dislike me. But you're not spending a significant amount of time with them either. It is very foreign to, you know, spend two months with a guy that you're going to fight. Um, that's trippy because if anything, you see them that week of the press conference and, you know, maybe a promo before that, but it's very spread out. You don't have enough time to, you know, see their character, to dislike their character, dislike their tendencies, all that stuff that actually got to do with Henry. And and, it, and he, he was off to a little head start because I did dislike him a bit more than I would anyone else <laughs> going into it. But then going into the show and having to spend six weeks with the guy it's so different because not really fighting and you have eight other guys fighting so you know it's really about them it's not about your fight so it really just comes down to you know other little things like we're not going to sit there and talk about each other's fights and how we're going to beat each other up when you know our other guys are fighting so it's more just you know i got to see just kind of how his character i didn't like him and why i didn't like him and you know all that kind of stuff um I wouldn't say it was, you know, I wouldn't exaggerate and say there was any just real, like, hatred or beef. We just, you know, didn't like each other. I think we're complete opposites and, uh, you know, just clash of personalities, if anything, you know. But, you know, I definitely tried to make it more more about the guys. But, I mean, it's tough when you are going to fight someone in five months and you have to see them every day. I want to co- Joe, this is uh, Elias. I want to come back to that, your own fight in a second. But I was just curious, um, you're talking about the quality of the participants on this season. I don't know how much you've followed in years past the the seasons of the Ultimate Fighter, but a lot of times people talk about like, okay, what are the best what's the best talent? Like what what season had the best talent? A lot of people talk about the first season, maybe that fourth season, the comeback season, or season number yeah. five. Where do you feel this cast, this group of guys ranks in, in terms of talent and skill of, of seasons the uh, Ultimate Fighters past? Yeah, I mean, I'm putting it right there in the top four or five. The hard thing is with this division, it's, it's yet to play out, you know, like how good the talent's going to be. Like, season one is obviously all-time classic. Even season two, I think, produced some great um, talent. Comeback season, that was one uh, one of, if not the first, right, to actually produce a champion, yeah. which this, comp- this competition has a very, very, you know, um, similar, you know, format to the comeback season, which I think was one of the best seasons that need to be done for a while, you know, in the same format. So they switched it up a little bit and did the same thing. But we produced such great fighters out of that. Like, those guys were good, had already been in the UFC. Then I think they got better in the show and, you know, then came out, did what they did. Matt Sarah shocked the world. And, you know, there holds some resemblance to this season. Um, I think one of the other really good seasons was the lightweight season with, um, 
with Biz being in Mayhem as coaches, yeah. you know, where they had Dotson, TJ Dillashaw. I mean, that's another champion that, are, you know, you're able to bring out of Tough. And, you know, I think there's only even a handful of those, you know, champions that came through the Tough show. So you got to put that one up there. You know, you get Dotson and TJ out there, you know, perennial title contenders. Um, you know, I think that's that's also holds a great season. But this one's right up there. I think if anyone talks, you know, Obviously, we're going to see how everything plays out, but, you know, already having Moreno go in there and beat a top 10 guy in the world coming out of the show. And, um, you know, a guy's going to definitely going to go for the title, you know, and some of the other guys' journeys. I think when you think of, you know, the few classes of the Ultimate Fighter, you know, would produce some real talent, this is going to be talked about, you know, um, throughout the show, throughout the history of the show. I imagine it will be. I, I'm, I'm curious, where, where are you getting your, your training and where are you doing your camp? Um, right now, I'm in Denver, Colorado, um, with Dwayne Ludwig. I'm getting some work in it, um, elevation as well um, with those guys. Obviously, you know, um, I live in Las Vegas, actually. Well, actually, not obviously. People didn't know that. I live in Las Vegas, so there's that. Um, so I obviously get a lot of training in there, too. You know, this is just two months of the time or a month and a half that I'm doing in Denver where, you know, a lot of the time where I'm just maintenance training and I feel I'm improving the most I'm doing in Las Vegas with um, Robert Fallis. He's a coach of mine. I had him on the Ultimate Fighter and he's also a personal, you know, would be a personal coach of mine, you know, um, moving forward. Um, I have Jimmy Gifford uh, as a boxing coach in Vegas who's been helping me a ton. And then down here I use Dwayne Ludwig as my head coach and, you know, mainly do my camps in Denver. But training-wise, you know, it's not fair to say I do my camps here because I'm always training in Vegas. Robert Drysdale, Robert Fallis, Jimmy Gifford, got a strength coach, Brent Browner down there. And I'm just kind of at the point where it's like, you know, I've done this long enough and I've been on a team, being team, I'm alpha male long enough with 50 guys and kind of a set coach and a set this and a set that, where I'm kind of just at the point where, hey, you know, I'm uh, – at the point where I can kind of go and do my own things, you know, there's always things when you're in a um, in a more structured thing, almost like a team where you have to be like, all right, that's when this practice is, that's when this team is. This is my coach because he's the coach. Where now I'm at the point where it's like, hey, I like this coach, Robert Fallis. I like this coach, Dwayne Ludwig. I like this practice. I like this practice, and you know, just moving it to more individualized. I like these training partners instead of having 50 guys or whatever. And, you know, so I just have a few training partners that I trust and can spar and drill with and, you know, a few coaches that can put, you know, 100% attention on me, you know, not necessarily a team. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. Uh, that's interesting. I, and it sounds obviously like you, you, you like the way it's working for you. Do, you, do a lot of guys get can get and guys and gals can seem to get lost in the weeds with you know with with a lot of different specialists and stuff and it's a tough thing you've got a lot of people in your ear and you've got multiple cities you're dealing with um what what keeps it together for you Do, are you basically like your own head coach where you make the final call um i mean you're working with multiple striking coaches different you know do they talk a lot and they communicate well or is it basically come down to hey joe jitsu knows himself and he makes the final call in these things Oh, no, I wouldn't say I'm my own coach at all. I mean, you know, that was part of the reason I wanted to do this and, you know, bring in Dwayne, you know, more, you know, full-time, you know. Obviously, you know, when I'm living here, he's my head coach. And then when I'm in uh, Vegas, you know, I look to Robert Fallis and Jimmy Gifford as my coaches, and they're both still, uh, like, I'll, I'll be going back to Vegas next week to do another week there and then, you know, continue to mix it up. So, no, 
Um, it's not by any means, you know, anything I do myself. Like, these are things I picked, and I picked these coaches for a reason because they do hold me accountable and they can contact with each other. And, you know, they know my style and, and work for it the best. And, you know, really just concentrate on me, like, um, you know, give me as much attention and everything as I need. So, uh, yeah, it's nice, but no, it's not by any means myself. It's it's me, myself, kind of on the team, but it's more like, hey, you know, I've got these coaches, you know, to, to take care of me as an individual, you mm. know, not necessarily a team. And, uh, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. That's a good clarification. Thanks for that. I, hey, when, when, you, when you left Team Alpha Male, how did you, how would you say you handled the communication of that? I, I had interviewed Uriah Faber a number of times in the past, and one of the things that he, seemed to be bothered by was what he felt was like a duplicity from or or coyness from tj dillashaw when he was leaving saying hey i asked him if he was going to leave he said no then later you know he said yeah did you learn any lessons from how all of that went down like how did you yourself handle it just in terms of communicating to these guys that you've been with for for a long time yeah it's not really a lesson you know for me it's just you know common sense on you know how to you know I guess treat people and communicate people with people that have been there for you and are a part of your, you know, world and your career. And, you know, that's all it pretty is for me is I'm pretty much straight up with anything. And, you know, I was training down here, like off and on anyway. I would come and help TJ, you know, because I still considered him a teammate, you know, even though he wasn't in Sacramento. Like we'd been through so much and helped each other, you know, get to where we were. So I was still helping him, you know. And then, you know, my situation it had been talked to talked about quite a bit with Faber and just other people on the team you know and you know I think anyone would admit like the team was kind of in before they actually got in um, UFC veterans Justin Buckles Danny Castillo Chris Holdsworth as coaches you know we always had a gang of coaches but not necessarily as much as of a, of a structure as like those three took over and honestly before that there was just a little bit where I was um you know, where I was saying, like, hey, you know, I'm going to eventually, you know, have to go do something else. And um, I was always straight ahead, straight up with it. And I was going back and forth to Denver. And then it wasn't until my last fight with Makovsky where I actually was already in Denver. And I got the call on, like, a four-week notice. And I was just like, hey, man, you know, enough talking about it. I'm just going to actually try the camp here and, you know, see if I need something different. told everybody that, you know, I thought needed to, to know. And, uh, and, you know, everyone was cool and, and supported and went on with it. Felt obviously really great doing that. And I said, hey, this is what I need to do again moving forward, you know, even for a longer camp. And, uh, you know, that's when I pretty much switched everything. And, uh, yeah, man, haven't, haven't really looked back. And, you know, as far as, like, relationships and everything goes, I mean, the only difference between me and the guys at Alpha Mel is we don't see each other and talk every day. But, you know, everyone's everyone's cool and, and, and nice when, when we see him and I think you know there's still a support and the love there it's just you don't see each other every day and that you know put the you know that changes the relationship in general if you're not hanging out with someone every single day I can imagine that I want to ask you I, I've been very curious to ask you about your your mentality your psychology you've you've built up throughout your career these these huge winning streaks and, and earned your way to the top um, and and really the only only losses you have had are at the very top i'm curious after after these losses you had to demetrius johnson what was the key for you joe in getting yourself in the right place mentally 
to do what you needed to do to get sharp and get back in there. Uh, losing is, in, you know, is not easy, and losing and fighting is, yeah. especially, is especially hard. Um, I mean, what, what was it about for you? What was the what was the key? Did you get amped up again for another title run? Did you just say, "I'm gonna, I enjoy the day to day, so I'm just gonna take it step by step"? Like, yeah. what, what was the key for you? Yeah, it wasn't necessarily getting pumped up for another title run because or a title fight, I should say, because um, you can't necessarily control that. You can control that by winning one fight, and you control winning one fight by, you know, going to practice, improving, doing the things you think you need to do to improve. Like, for me, you know, it's like, all right, I didn't win those title fights, but do I want to go do the same exact thing and expect me to win that title shot the next time? No. That's why I made this change for Denver. It's like, you know, you're doing the same thing and expecting different results. You know, I came to that conclusion, right, I've lost the title shot. What do I need to do different? And, you know, obviously after every loss, every fight, you go do some things different. But, you know, for the most part, there was goals I wasn't accomplishing. And, you know, that was another reason I, I thought really I had to move. So I think just that refreshment, that realization, you know, gives you this new, you know, step forward. And now, like on a five-fight win streak. But um, also it's just controlling what you can control, you know, like – all right, I can't control if I get another title shot or or anything or the next fight or the next that. Like I can just control my like day to day and make myself as good as I can for to be ready for if that opportunity comes, which you know, hopefully it's inevitable and it is if I continue just to beat people, you know, if I don't lose, you know, something eventually has to happen. So that's where I'm at now. Like I said, five fight winning streak. So you just got to have a short memory, you know, when you finish the like after the last loss it wasn't like hey that guy's better than me you know it's like hey i got caught i didn't necessarily perform to my abilities you know i think it would actually be a little more crushing if you you know just like fought to the best of your abilities and did everything perfect and still you know lost you know and that's kind of hard because you're just like man what else can i do but for me you know especially the way the second fight went it was very coincidental you know you get caught with the shot two minutes in from a guy who doesn't knock people out and a guy me who's never been finished so you know it's also kind of easy to look at that as like hey you know that was a coincidence that's you know now it's just time to prove how good you are now five fights after i think i have and you know only getting better still have the fight with cejudo to prove that and like i said i don't you never see me asking for a title shot or asking for this because you know i don't believe in hey you get what you deserve or or whatever i can control that like that's always the the main goal you know it's like that's the long-term goal is obviously i want to be the champion you know before everything but that's not what you look at every day you know like it's like the steps and stuff it takes to get there um that i think i was lacking especially in my first title fight with demetrius like i wasn't just on the journey to become it like i just thought like i was just worried about the result so, you know, just kind of stop worrying about the result and the hyper-focusing of a title as much as just kind of living in the moment, controlling that. So by the time I do get there, I'm as, pre- as well prepared, you know, mentally and physically, technically as I can be. And uh, if you don't mind, I just had two questions before we let you go back to that delicious-sounding avocado sandwich. Um, I already ate that. <laughs> Good, smart man. What is your, uh, given your relation to the three fighters, what is your... Uh, thoughts on the triangle atop the bantamweight division between Cruz, Dillashaw, and Garbrandt? Oh, it's an exciting, exciting triangle. I mean, for fans, for everybody, um, it's cool, yeah, I mean, I have, you know, quite a bit of relationship with each person, 
you know, fought Cruz twice, eight rounds. Obviously, I have a tremendous amount of respect for him as an opponent and just the fighter even from the outside. Um, TJ, you know, former champion and teammate of mine now, you know, more of a teammate now than, you know, Cody is, who was a, I guess Cody would be a former teammate, you know, still, you know, a friend and everything. So, yeah, man, it's it's a, it's different. I'm excited to just see it play out. I hope at some point in some, you know, way that all three of them get to fight the other two in some way. You know, might not be, you know, the first thing or the second thing, but I just hope all of them get to fight like a little mini, like, round robin in some way in the future, you know? Because um, I just think all three of those matchups or however many matchups amongst the three of them we can make are all just, uh, like amazingly exciting fights to to watch so you know we'll see who gets the crack first but like i said if if it's one and not the other i hope the other gets it next you know and that we just get to see all those guys you know fight each other at some point like bantamweight is incredible right now so it's, uh, it's exciting to see and yeah like you said those three guys at the top um doesn't get any better than that and uh for those who don't know you're a big martin scorsese fan and uh <laughs> He's yeah. got some projects coming. So I was wondering out of the projects that he has coming down the pipeline, which one are you looking forward to the most? Like, doesn't he have a movie coming about Jesus Christ? And then he has, like, of course, a mob movie coming. Yeah, well, he has the one um, with Andrew Garfield coming out. The It's like, it's basically, yeah, it's like a monk traveling thing. I, I, I forgot what it was called. But that's the one I'm just drawing a blank totally here. But uh, yeah, that's an exciting one to uh, uh, look forward to. I think it should be out by the end of the year too. So it's definitely like one of the most anticipated ones of the year. And anything, anytime you ever get something new from him, uh, you know, it's great. And I think it's a long-term project, like a passion project that mm-hmm. he's wanted for a while too. So um, that should be awesome. But that one's with Andrew Garfield. And I think he plays um, like a monk or something. It's called a silence, actually. Yeah. So that one's actually that's the next one up for me that I know of of Scorsese, anyway. Yeah, I just think it's gonna be interesting to see him break from the mob stereotype that he's or genre that he's become so known for. Well, Definitely. Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to talk to us. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. Dude, I love it, man. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Appreciate the time. Best of luck in camp, man. Thank you, thank you. Working hard every day. I know Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks. There you go, Joseph Benavidez, everybody. Uh, nice of him to call back after uh, the little hiccup in uh, trying to get him on the first time. Um, lots of great things to say. Yeah, what a great guest, man. What a great guest. Super smart guy. Really engaging. He talk about everything from food to fights to uh, film. So can't go wrong there, man. And uh, we have... Uh, some more Conor McGregor audio to go over before we get out to our last guest, Angelo Reyes. So wanted to go ahead and uh, get started on the more Conor McGregor side of things because I know there's a lot of people uh, tuning in to watch that. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong. The last thing we played was her advice to Ronda Rousey. Yeah, McGregor talking to Rousey saying, you know, shut them all up. So uh, to recap for the people who missed it the first time around, this was from a press conference, not a press conference, a a media blitz where he was promoting his role in the new Call of Duty Infinite Warfare game. Uh, And we got the opportunity to talk to him over the weekend. And uh, we recorded the audio and we wanted to play sound bites of it back to you since he couldn't be on the show live. And 
uh, just to clarify that he was in a conference room, so the audio is not the best, but uh, we wanted to share it with you anyway. So we, he told us earlier what his advice to Ronda Rousey was, which was basically shut them all up and go get back what's yours. Um, so the next one I wanted to do was uh, fighters threatening to retire when uh, they're not getting their way is what I asked him for his opinion on that. You saw Jose Aldo do that with um, when Conor McGregor got booked to fight Alvarez. You saw Khabib give the UFC an ultimatum when he uh, got passed over for the fight against Eddie Alvarez for the lightweight title after getting a contract for 205 and 206. And then you've seen Juliana Pena react the way she has after Ronda Rousey got uh, the title fight against Amanda Nunes, pushing her potential shot down the line, so to speak. And uh, this is what Connor had to say. that he ended with uh, I wish them well yeah. <laughs> kind of like a, a subtle way of being like don't forget who's running running the show um, or good luck you know good, good luck <laughs> good luck with that but yeah he's definitely speaking from a position of on high right yeah uh, <clears throat> so the next question I asked was uh, about UFC um, 205 Dana White's been adamant that he's going to have to drop one of the title belts mm-hmm. and uh, at the 205 press conference in Madison Square Garden Conor McGregor said he was going to it was going to take an army and a tank to get the belt from him so I asked him he said uh, Dana White's adamant that you have to give one up I know you said you won't but if you had to if you were forced to decide between one or the other which one would it be and uh, he wasn't necessarily fond of the question but this was his answer anyways Look, let me let me just wrap them. Let, let, let me see the pictures on top of the case with the belt on each shoulder for us. Do you know what I mean? Let me put up on, on, on the side of that opening on and raise two world titles, what's never been done before, inside the Madison Square Garden. Before talking about stripping me. I mean, let me get the fucking things. You know what I mean? Let me do it. So, we'll decide that when it comes. And I'm not, I'm not for or against any of these things. You know, I'll always listen to the, the correct business move. And it'll be always, I'll always do the, whatever is, you know, whatever is the correct middle to do. And so, but let me see, let me, let me, let me do it. And let me go back and let me look at some pictures of, of me with the two belts. And let me just embrace that for half a, half a day. So I mean, that's Absolutely. What that's what I'm talking about. That's yeah. what I, you know, and it's the media. It's the media that's making this, these kind of, Raising the belt. 
what has not been done before. We'll figure out the correct move after that. And, 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 and I'm not for or against any of the, the stuff that's been suggested. I'm all for it. But don't be trying to take away the historic moment before I've even experienced it. And then uh, I kind of chime in and I'm like, I can't, I don't know if I can speak for all media, but um, <clears throat> I feel like you should be given the opportunity to defend both belts. Uh, I think that you should go um, beyond winning it to um, actually defending it. Mm-hmm. You know, him to win the belt and have two and then give one up afterwards seems like it, it was, you know, a formality or a stunt, which, I, you know, I guess people could consider it that way as opposed to having the opportunity to actually um, to actually defend them both at the same time. You know, if he can hold on to it and make one title defense at featherweight, that really adds a whole other level to the fact that he was a two-weight champion sure does. at the same time. And uh, he went on to say, um, uh, is there anyone more active than me? You know, is there anybody who fights as often as I am? And we'll, we'll play some of that right now. Because that's something that's never been done either. I mean... Is there anyone more active in the game than me? Nope. There you go. Is there anyone in the game that could potentially hold and defend two belts simultaneously? Other than me, there isn't. I'm the only one. So if I'm active and I'm, you know what I mean, if enough of us to be injured after something, maybe then. But I don't know. Like I said, let me get to my historic moment. Let me enjoy it. And then we'll figure it out now. And, uh, you know the MMA fan will say that the only person who fights as active, who's as active is Donald Cerrone, or clearly, you know, there's other active fighters. Sure. Um, he's certainly not the only one, but he's definitely very active and capable if he were to, of course, stay healthy. Yeah, I don't know um, if there's a more active champion. Yeah, there's as far he's as not defending the belts, but he's fighting way too right. often <laughs> to be yeah. healthy. Uh, as far as champions go, there's certainly nobody who's more active. Um, so then I asked him about 202 that you used to just train. Uh, you know, just focus on that, but mm. you changed that for 202, bringing in certain people to train with uh, that were similar body types, had similar skill sets mm-hmm. to Nate Diaz, and uh, was this, um, this is something you were going to do just for 202 to beat Nate Diaz? Is this something that you're going to start doing for every fight going forward uh, now? And this is what he had to say. Yeah, you know, certainly I'm, I'm a, lot more, a lot more specific than I used to be. So even now, like it's, oh, I'm training with a stockier, shorter, you know, much different stylistic opponents than I was in the previous two camps. I mean, the, well, the last camp, I mean, the last camp I was firing middleweights, that clear takes for all self-pause. So this camp I'm fighting the five foot seven range freestyle wrestler with solid box, okay box, you know, that's, and that's, and that's, that's been generous to him because his, his wrestling is not smooth whatsoever. There's no beautiful transitions. There's no there's no there's no smoothness in, in his work and his, his striking is certainly below par. So, but we'll we'll prepare for for the frame and the specific um, sequences that we may see in the fight. But I see him walking up to something really heavy really early, and me walking out at. MGM 
nice little Freudian slip with MGM Grant. He's fought there so much recently that he's used to it. Yeah, and he almost paid a compliment to his opponent before like retracting. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, okay, he doesn't have right. solid boxing. <laughs> um, and uh, then the last question I asked him was: uh, There a point in your career after everything that you were done, uh, you were doing, that you decided to assert yourself and your needs more when it came to? Um, obligations uh, obviously that was a big storyline of why 200 was um why he was pulled from 200 and ultimately didn't appear on that card but i was hoping that maybe there was uh, some kind of specific moment or uh some specific incident that caused like the light bulb to switch outside of uh him just wanting to get that loss back and that's what he had to say i mean it's been, a, it's been an ongoing battle with it with the obligations i mean it was going on back then and it goes on now so yeah. Sometimes you just gotta do what's right for you, and not what's right for everybody else. Sometimes, so that's what I learned. The last one, but I didn't just turn my back. I create my own channels. We create the mic lights. We create this and the mic lights. The, the the videos, and they will be releasing again soon. In the lead up to this fight, so uh, we we forever stay on the promotion game. We we forever push the product. We forever push the fight, the promotion, everything. So. Um, the accepted and appreciated was a big theme that he kept reiterating uh, about the two title belts. You know, in one of the audit clips we played earlier, he talks about like, can we just enjoy this? Like, people should be excited that I'm doing this. Like, people shouldn't be upset that I'm doing this. There shouldn't be talk about me holding up divisions. There should be talk about me doing something that's never been achieved. Well, I before. think fans are excited. I think Dana White is talking a whole lot about him not being <laughs> right. holding up divisions. <laughs> um, I'm excited. I mean, it's, it really is incredible. Uh, there's only been a few people that have been able to get belts in two weight divisions, more than one weight division, and they never held them at the same time. Well, Dan Henderson did in Pride, uh, but it, it, you know, it's, it's never been done in the UFC. It's 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 incredible. It's an incredible uh, task he, he's put in front of him. Right, and you know, there's I guess some merit to you know the discussion's been so much, you know the negative side of things and part of that is people like Khabib and people and Jose Aldo being upset about it but at the same time he is on the press I know that I'm more interested in seeing him achieve history than I am concerned about the divisions you know let's see what happens let's let's confront that problem when it gets here it's not here yet I don't think it is here yet and I and I think those things I think different I think those things can exist at the same time I can want to see him defend against Jose Aldo and I can want to see Khabib get a title shot and I can also still at the same time be excited that the Connor, you know, the Connor uh, Alvarez fight. Like it's there's doesn't elicit any hatred out of me. Um, all those things are true. In the universe, lots of <laughs> adversarial things can be true at the same time. Um, so we gotta run in out of time. We gotta move along onto our final guest, uh, Angelo Reyes. For those of you who don't know, he's the striking coach for um, Frank Mir, uh, amongst other notable fighters. Um, so. Welcome to the show, and thank you for taking the time out to talk to us. I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks. Thanks. This is going to be fun. Um, before uh, we were talking about coming on the show, you mentioned Frank Mir. So how is he? What is he up to since we saw him in the cage last? Uh, right now, he's weighing 167 pounds. He's in uh, phenomenal... I, I wouldn't say we're quite at fight shape yet, but um, he's been training every day. Um, other than that... He's been town a lot because he's been doing a ton of seminars. He just signed up for, um, he's going to be the commentator for uh, uh, an event in Russia. So he's leaving 
this week for that. Um, but he always comes back, and I always see him, and he, he never misses a practice when he's down here. And we're just, you know, overall, he's, you know, Frank Mears living the martial artist life. You know, he's, we're, we're even when we're not training and we're at his house, we're just constantly talking about karate and and, and boxing and the ways of jujitsu and, and kind of kind of all the different things he's experienced in his life and how he puts it together and it's actually been really great because Frank right now as you know even even though he's not um, he's not actively fighting uh, he's been doing a lot of mentoring so he's really um, on a whole ton and also uh, Alessandro Ritchie um, who's up here from Toronto doing a training camp up with me so it's, it's just been really great. Coach uh, Elias here. You, I, I was personally shocked when when Frank Mir asked publicly for the UFC to to release him. Uh, were you shocked when, when he asked? He's he's been in the UFC so long. He was one of the main, uh, their main most loyal fighters for a long time. Former multiple time champion uh, and a Vegas guy. Were you shocked when it happened? Um, I don't remember what was that. It was like uh, during I think it was during uh, UFC 200 Fight Week. Um, I think with Frank, he was just frustrated. He, he just he just would like to have an actual conversation with one of the top people. Mm. Um, and you know, I again, I don't know. I, I, I you have to remember, I've only been in the UFC for the last couple of years, so um, I don't exactly know how that works. Um, so I, I think a lot of it is just frustration in Frank's end, where he feels like here I am. I've given my life blood work to this company that he actually loves. Frank loves the UFC. Um, and he, you know, he, it's, it's his home. It's when you think, when you think Frank Mir, you think UFC, it would be kind of weird to actually not think <laughs> Frank Mir UFC. Cause they've been together. I think there's only been two fights in Frank's entire career record. That was not in the UFC. Um, he still has the highest, I believe submission and, and, the entire heavyweight division, and I think he's still tied for first in, in finishes, I think, overall. Um, so, you know, it's Frank Mir, man, and, and I think he just wants, like, uh, hey, Dana, can we have some coffee, or, you know, or maybe even the new owners, like, I don't, I, I asked him, I said, have you even met the new owners, or talked to them? He said, no, I haven't. So, um, but I think at the end of the day, you know, um, uh, his management's a really sharp management, and Frank's doing a lot of stuff, and, um, I think it's all going to get fixed anyway. So sooner or later, we're going to hear uh, Frank Mir being back in the octagon because honestly, this time off, Mike, uh, is really giving him a renewed vigor to want to go after that belt, to want to go after that title. Um, his body's healing well. He's, he's again, it's not like he's sitting on the couch getting fat doing nothing. This guy, when he's in town, if he's not in Russia or he's not in. Oklahoma or Colorado or wherever he is doing these seminars, he is in the octagon with me, training, working on his karate, working on his boxing. Well, he's working on his MMA grappling. He's, he's, there's so many. This guy's a martial artist. So, you know, I'm sure it's a little bit like even how George St. Pierre, like I just heard George St. Pierre's interview. And um, it's like George St. Pierre, you know, he took the time off. He feels like he's at the best time of his life as a martial artist so he wants to test it out um and uh and right now i mean believe me man I, i'm 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 seeing frank moving with 
you know, 155ers and, and, and 170 people, people that are supposed to be faster than him, and Frank's keeping up with all of them. And uh, I'm I'm sitting there thinking in my head, I would love for us to get a crack at Steve Miocic right about now or, or whoever the belt holder will be by the time uh, Frank finally gets back in the octagon. So, so all things are good up here. So There's a lot of good stuff to unpack there, Angelo. And uh, you mentioned uh, George St. Pierre and in after talking about Frank and what you thought was maybe some of his displeasure at, at maybe the UFC no longer being such a small company anymore and having difficulty being able to talk to, to top brass about issues or just about anything. Did you did you hear what GSP said about uh, his his negotiations with the UFC kind of going south once the, the new owners got involved? Yeah, I, I, I did hear him say that. Um, again, I don't know the particulars, so... We only know what George said. But from what George was saying, it sounded like there was some deadline that needed to be hit. And it even actually sounded like when uh, the Fertitas were still involved, he really felt that they wanted him back. And they were almost there with the deal. And when the new owners kind of stepped in, um, it just kind of, you know, it just kind of changed. Uh but again, I mean, that happens with any company, right? If, if, if a new ownership group steps in and they buy whatever company that you own, then things are going to change anyway. So I think George is just rolling with the punches. But what I was surprised to hear is George publicly saying that he's a free agent. Because I've always known George to be more of a tactical person. So I don't think he would be saying something like that unless it really is true, that he really is a free agent. So if that's the case, oh man, George St. Pierre, arguably the greatest mixed martial artist uh, we've ever seen, um, definitely top three, top four. So uh, I'm sure any organization would love to have him right now. Going back, Coach, to uh, to Frank to Frank Mir, and um, how eager was he to get back in the gym? Because one of the 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 knocks in his reputation. Deserve it or not, I don't know Frank outside of interviewing him. I've never and seeing him as a great fighter. I've never been in the gym with him. But one of the knocks was, especially earlier in his career, was that he didn't he relied too much on talent. Didn't love to be in the gym. He wasn't exactly a gym rat. How eager was he to get back in the gym? From what you saw after his last fight, um, you know, he took a little time off. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of different things. Just again, he. You wanted to, you know. I, I got to tell you, like when when we did, I started working with Frank in December of 2014, and and that's when we did the turnaround. Where um, you know he started learning a new striking system. Um, you know the style that it, this. I mean, again, they've, they've already done UFC uh, countdowns on what it is. It's a hybrid of, of the karate style that both me and Frank grew up with, um, and and the boxing that I had learned from Freddie Roach. So. Um, you know, we started picking up on that, and as you can see, we had success. We knocked out Silva, we knocked out Duffy, um, 